Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast and I'm here with, uh, well I'm here in the living room because uh, we are still in lockdown but I'm joined with uh, with me by Gareth, Gareth Shaw from Mediate. Um, Gareth, we're making a regular thing of this of course, this is uh, um, round two, uh, fourth hole. Fourth hole. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, crikey, how have we managed to fit in you know, twenty plus uh, podcasts just chatting shit about golf, um, <laughs> and that's the that's the beauty of it. That is pretty much what we are doing, all centered around putting and short game. But um, you know, it, for me, you know, the, the podcast is evolving. We're doing things in a slightly different way. You know, we're coming to the end of the golf season in its sort of basic form, uh, as we know from competitive point of view, and that's why we. You know, we we don't touch so much on tour talk as much as we did uh, in the first series, the first round. But ultimately, um, there is still a bit of golf going on. Um, I know that you've not watched much of the golf over the weekend because we're a little bit golfed out with the uh, phenomenal display of golf that we had from Augusta last week. But, you know, in terms of distance debate, still crops up i'm going to bring it up now there's a young man uh south african uh wilco naimaba um, well done very good well done Andy. i mean <laughs> hey listen um you know i've repeated his name that many times this weekend i still forget how to do it i have to look at it but um you know kind of i mean talk about chalk and cheese we we've this guy is not chucking thirty protein shakes down him every single day. He's twenty years of age, there's a strip of wind, there's nothing to him. He hit a four hundred and thirty-nine yard drive. Now, arguably you could say it's a little bit downwind and a little bit downhill, but nobody else did it. In fact, actually I think he outdrove one of his playing partners by over a hundred yards on that particular hole, and they're both at the same club. So this <laughs> You know, it just shows you that there is more than one way to get the job done. And we haven't got to go bulking, beefing and doing all the stuff. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't work out in the gym. I would be very surprised if he didn't do something in the gym. He looks, a, you know, a strong man, but he, young man, but he's lean. He hasn't finished growing. I mean, we remember when Tiger came on the scene, you know, Tiger was a strip of wind. He's able to generate a lot of clubhead speed. He's an incredible whip at the base of the swing. We're talking driving, all right? We know that this is a centred podcast around everything inside 100, 150 yards, you know, and rolling the ball on the green. But, you know, I, I have to mention, you know, that beefing up and doing all the things that you feel like you've got to do to hit the golf ball a long way isn't necessarily what we've got to do. No. And, you know, that's, I think, you know, for... for my audience out there is don't think you've got to do all of that, but you might have to. And don't think that, you know, if you are a strip of wind, you can't generate the speed. But what I will say is for those of us that have got an, an audience, you know, below. So in other words, what we, you know, parents of kids, get your kids hitting the golf ball a long way. All right. You know, there's a couple of things that will come up. There's some things that we're going to share today. Um, you know, but one of the things that I will say, and I heard it very early on when I was a kid and I, you know, it's part of my story with, about me and dad, you know, something that I shared with, you know, family and friends at dad's funeral was, you know, Jack Nicholas in his book, playing lessons or in his series books of playing lessons, which were little scribble drawings of, you know, images, um, you know, great upstairs. Page, it's oh, cool. phenomenal. One, two, and three. I've still got them. You know, they're they're in my uh, lockup, and you know, just the simplicity of of you know the way that he said it. You know, and he said, "Teach a child to hit it hard and a long way. They'll soon get fed up of looking for it, and learn how to hit it straight." Now, I think there's some caveats and footnotes to that. That's all I remember from that page. It, you know, there was that's probably one little paragraph of the chapter that was in there, and you know, they're one-page chapters. Crucially, hit it hard in a long way. And one of the things that I remember from me as a kid playing, I don't remember missing putts because I didn't. I just hold everything. 
Um, as primarily because I hit my wedge shots close, not because I was a good putter, remember that. Um, it's hit it hard in a long way. And I remember a conversation, I was 14 years of age, I'd just turned 14, the clocks, are, you know, my birthday's in March, the clocks had turned at the end of March, and, you know, we were out playing golf again in the early spring. And I remember Dad saying to me, will you just slow down after another golf ball disappeared off into the trees? And, and I can remember where it was. It was a right into the trees, which was unusual because I normally hit it left. Um, I hadn't quite figured out how to hit the hook at that point in time, so it wasn't quite as often. But, um, you know, club face was open. I've hit the ball into the cabbage on the right-hand side. It hasn't been mowed down yet because it's still early season. You know, it was knee-high rough, and we're, I, I probably didn't even find the golf ball. But... You know, I remember whilst we're hunting around in this wet grass, Dad said to me, he said, well, you just slow down and, and hit the fairway. And I quoted Jack's page in the book. I said, Jack Nicholas said, hit it hard and a long way and you'll learn how to hit it straight soon enough. So that's to get fed up of looking for it. And he said, well, I'm fed up of looking for it. You know, and it just, you know, it's some one of those things that stands out from the memories of Dad, but you know, the key there is that we can't be blasé with the element of, you know, having to look for it because ultimately it's going to cost you shots. But with kids, you know, and this is, you know, we're going to center a little bit on, you know, sort of working with kids, I guess, you know, over, you know, today and over the podcasts coming forward because, you know, of the, the kids that I teach and the things that I work with them, I'm not responsible for their swings. You know, short game and putting is all that I work with on, you know, for the kids. But it's teach your child to hit it hard in a long way. I do not want to hear parents telling their kids to slow down. I don't want to hear them telling them to keep their head down. Keep your left arm straight, you know, if you're right-handed. You know, keep your head down and slow down. Swing it slower, Andy. Swing it slower. You want you swing it slower. Ah! Oh, I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, clearly it's got to you, Gareth, because, you know, you've managed to pull your hair out. But exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is hair pulling stuff. It is raging, you know, sort of like, oh. And I, I hear it on a range where, I'm, where I practice, and I'll actually go up and tell the dad, look, you know. There's two things about this. First and foremost, the kid's looking at dad and dad's got both feet off the ground and he's trying to hit it over every, you know, all three fences that surround the range. And the kid looks at his dad and he goes, but, well, but you're doing it. You're hitting it hard because he can only see that you're hitting it hard. Your swing speed is significantly faster than his and he wants to emulate that. The kid is he's still looking in dad's eyes as you are my hero still, right? And that's going to change very quickly. But, you know, at some point, you can't double standard your, your words. Don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, it don't cut it if you're not very good on the golf course. <laughs> you know, and invariably, you know, as parents, we are not exemplary golfers. We're not touring professionals that are, you know, we're not Tiger Woods taking Charlie out for a weekend stroll around the golf course. You know, we are regular golfers, probably with a mid-teen to 20 handicap, because that's average. And we've got a kid that's in tow with us, aspiring to be like you at this point because they don't know any better because they've probably not played with anybody who's better than you. And they see what you do and they want to emulate that. So it isn't a case of don't do as I do. Do what you need to do and explain to your child that hitting the golf ball a long way is the key to golf for the, for the future. It always has been. That's the crazy thing about it. You know, I was learning the game 40 plus years ago. And because of the things that, you know, now come to the fore, it's no different. Jack Nicholas was saying then, Jack Nicholas was the long hitter. Jack would knock it 30, 40 yards past Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. And what did they do? They just stepped up to hitting it harder, you know, and Gary Player learned how to hook it to roll the ball further. You know, he'd figure that out anyway. The fact that Jack could do it the nice high fade and carry it the total distance of Gary's drive is irrelevant, you know, because ultimately they both they all learned how to get the golf ball round the golf course, but by hitting it longer and getting it in the fairway. Now, you know, these are the key it's the key to it. Yes, you can hit it into the rough if you're strong. And the one advantage that Bryson's got over you know, Wilco is that 
he's going to be significantly stronger because of the bulk. That's the difference. He may or may not be more or less susceptible to injury. That's the thing we don't know. And the, the end of the career tally will tell us that. You know, Wilco being a strip of wind, for want of a better expression, a very lean individual, probably close to half of um, you know, Bryson's weight. It certainly won't be a million miles well, probably two-thirds of it. Um, you know, he's, he's going to potentially be susceptible to injuries but actually when you watch him swing the golf club he swings it extremely well albeit there's a little quirky bit on the follow-through which is really intriguing to me i can't see it slow enough to find out exactly what he does but he kind of holds things off a little bit um a bit savvy ask a little bit yeah a little bit but you know you can see that he's you know he's trying not to miss it left um you know with his method um he doesn't miss it right very often he just fell short dropped a couple of shots in the last two holes um, you know, and was overtaken by um, was it, uh, Joachim Hansen uh, from Denmark. Uh, um, what a terrific golfer he is as well. And, um, you know, he dug himself out a little bit Seve-esque, you know, got behind a few trees and, you know, into trouble and, you know, put the ball into the right place pitch. I mean, his, his short game was phenomenal. But it shows that if you are sufficiently long, that you are hitting the golf ball reasonably straight, but more importantly, you have a short game, you can compete. It just comes back to, yes, Wilco has the ability to golf ball 400 plus yards, but at the same time, he's learning his craft. He's going to learn to cope with the pressure. He didn't look like he was even feeling the pressure, you know, until the um, 14th, which is a par five. He had a wedge in his hand for his second shot. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, you know, 550 plus yards driving a wedge and he hit it over the back. So he's got to learn to play with his adrenaline and, you know, to go through those. He'll learn his craft. He's, you know, it's a terrific talent. He will win um, very shortly, I would think. And he'll win, you know, outside of his continent to South Africa. But he, you know, what, what a terrific talent. Um, but again, it comes down to the fact that you've got to be able to get up and down. He didn't hit the ball into bad places. Um, he gave himself plenty of room to work with, but what Mr. Hansen did was got up and down from all the difficult places, and he, you know, one terrific up and down, you know, short side himself over a trap to a green that's going away from him, and he played the most exquisite flop shot to within about four or five feet and not the put in for birdie, and you know, with all the green to work with, Wilco couldn't get up and down out of the trap. So, you know, it, it's uh, in fact he had to had to hold a really good lengthy putt to, uh, you know, to make par. So, you know, when we're looking at the game, yes, you've got to hit it a long way because because it's the future of the game, you know, competitively. But more importantly, you've got to be able to get up and down. You've still got to be able to get up and down. It's you know, it's the essence of the win for uh, Dustin Johnson last week. And then, and then, you know, again, we're just seeing it uh, in South Africa on the European Tour this week. In America, RSM Classic, Kevin Kistner, I don't think he's renowned as one of the longest hitters. Um, friend of the show, friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've challenged Kevin, those of you that don't know. Um, and, uh, oh, crikey, Gareth, check it out. I've forgotten who it was that won. What a stunning... Shot there was a playoff, uh, and he lipped out kind of lipping out, maybe a little bit strong term. You know, he run the ball over the whole bit. He had he had, had a, a cracking shot in from out, out the semi rough. He'd given, he given himself the perfect miss. If you're going to miss the fairway, miss it on the right side. He's given himself the opportunity. He's played a cracking shot into the green, um, held the ball up, and um, you know, it's not put in. Well, it was a gimme anyway. Um, but again, you know, Mr. Kistner had to hold his approach shot. Um, you know, to win, obviously. So he didn't do that. He missed the green. He was in a difficult position, but missed the green, put it over the back. Robert Streb. Robert That's Strab. the one, Streb. Fantastic name. Um, and, you know, Kevin Kisner's holder 20-footer for par, um, just to make it a bit more interesting. You know, I mean, he literally, you know, he's given, he could have given up, a little bit showed a little bit like Tiger, you know, sort of, you know, if you shoot 10 and then have five birds in the next six holes, you know, he didn't have that scenario. But 
one of the things the commentators were saying that, you know, there are a handful of tournaments where the guy who doesn't hit it 300 yards has a chance to win. And interestingly, Zach Johnson was making a bit he of a He played run. well as well, didn't he? He played and, well, Johnson. Um, you know, so it shows you that, again, another shorter hitter with a great wedge game, great short game, you know, was able to compete, you know, on a golf course that sort of sets, it out and sets itself up. So, it, you know, I think golf courses can be set up to mix it up so that the big hitters are not at an advantage. And, you know, the golf courses don't have to be extremely long. And again, this then comes down to the ecology of golf. You know, we don't need 8,000-yard golf courses ever. Um, you know, and we don't need to, you know, golf courses to be, on first impressions, impossibly difficult. But, you know, it's one of those scenarios that, uh, again, it comes down to the fact that the winners this week have got impeccable short games. Mm. What do you like, Andy, about, I know Kissner didn't win, but what do you like about his putting stroke? I know we've challenged him a little bit about his pot, uh, about his training. He, you know, for those of you who have not seen, he stands on like half half spiky balls. Mm. I'll um, put it. I'll put a picture in the in the YouTube video. Yeah, so we can get get a chance to see it. Um, and we've challenged the fact that he's positioned the balls, uh, these spiky balls, under the ball to toe of his foot. So it's very much on the front of his foot. That causes you to then compromise your balance. That's a massive thing, as you know, those of you that have listened to the shows before. Um, you know, but he's extremely stable over the ball, and I think he does stand reasonably tall to it. Um, you know, I, I've not studied his putting, you know, to be honest with you, uh, Gareth. I think he's, uh, statistically, he's, uh, you know, better than the ordinary, better than the norm. Um, he's very solid. And it just, you know, I think he he has to rely on it. But I think, you know, stats also don't necessarily, you know, the rest of his game, you know, he's an extremely solid player and he's good around the green. So I think he's solid without being exceptional in any particular area, you know, which will make him a very good journeyman pro. He's not going to scare anybody. He's not going to light any courses Mm. up, you know, and that's not to sort of discredit him you know he gets everything out of his game I think that's the most important thing is that's what we do we get the most out of our game yeah and so something I think you, you touched on there and I know it, it really bugs us both of the the kind of the commentary and the statements that, that people make and still from the driving range to the the commentary that we hear on the tv that the eyes over the ball really bugs me really bugs me where did that come from is that literally from the pj manual or somebody back in the day thought this was the concept this is the way to put um i think it's very difficult when you look in the archives and say right where did it come from when you look in the archives it's like oh when did that appear um and somebody somewhere has an authority to be able to place it you know in this sort of placeholder position Mm -hmm. that then he picks up traction so you know we're all capable of doing that we've just got to you know it's just a case of it's much more difficult to discredit something that has no credibility than it is to actually come up with something that has no credibility Mm -hmm. um and you know it and that's that's where the challenge because you know at that point then you know it sounds like you're being conspiracy theorist against something where that doesn't work and it's extremely difficult to discredit it when it, especially when it's been around 50 years mm-hmm. i don't know when it appeared in the pga training manual and i don't necessarily think that you know sort of uh, the questions i've asked have been very sort of slow on the upstart to to actually say oh yes we introduced it at such and such a time who introduced it well there was a collative writing mm. um sort of capacity at the time there's half a dozen professionals that were uh, within the pga who were part of privy to sort of orchestrating the, the training manual for coaching at the time so you know i'm going to say that it was around the six late 60s early 70s so i'm going to say it's out been out there around about 50 years it was physically impossible in the mid 60s um because butters were 37 inches long yeah so unless you were six yeah unless you were six foot plus 
and golfers didn't generally you know non-golfers took up didn't take up the game if you were over six foot two because there wasn't equipment out there for you it hurt your yeah. back simple as that golf equipment was made for the the average individual which would have been around about five foot eight to five foot ten yeah. you know once you got over five foot ten you started to look at golf equipment being a little bit longer or needing to be a little bit longer or you bent over it a little bit more and you hurt your back you know that option didn't you know the tubes we played you know we put into the heads you know the steel shafts were very heavy you know they would have been you know if you didn't make them heavy enough then they were too thin and if they became if they were too thin they were brittle so you know they were that it took a while for the stability of that shaft to to come in so that we could then make them lighter that we could then make the clubs longer and you know likewise it, you know back in the day when i started playing the game a driver was 43 inches end of mm -hmm. now five would to 43 inches um you know 44 for three would 40 you know and we wonder why we're hitting the golf ball further but you know back in the day when i played you know my i had a driver you know back when i was a kid you know the first swing measurements that i had done which would have been late 80s early 90s my club head speed with a driver was 108 mile an hour and you know to break the 100 mile an hour and that's what and at that point it's like well that's why i'm one of the longer hitters around but I was generating 108 mile an hour. Nobody else was really generating much more than that. But the reason why you couldn't do that is because 43 inches and, and 125 gram steel shaft was what was helping that to, to happen. I mm. Probably might have been a little bit lighter than that. I can't quite remember how heavy the, um, the, the driver shafts were in steel. But, you know, steel, it was a wooden head so there was already some mass weight in the head and that just restricted you made it any longer and it just became you know you had to take the lead out and if you took the lead out you made the club you know weaker um as well it had to be you know the and for those of you that don't know you know we had you know in the blocks of woods that the head would be about this sort of size and you know about the size of a hybrid now and um you know not like you know we we joked about it at the time about drivers becoming the size of a wok you know i mean but you know that they are in comparison and you know i remember my kids looking at my driver uh you know i had a harry busson driver you know when i was younger and you know it was handcrafted and you know it was ridiculously expensive and you know it was used by the best players in the world and it, actually interestingly it was used by a certain fella um you know in the 1985 Ryder cup um i wouldn't let it go i mean should have done because it's not worth anything now he offered me good money for it anyway but <laughs> um, no, you can't go on that's, that's a good story go on andy God, that's like dangling the carrot that is go on divulge no no, no, <laughs> no because i think there's some contract issues <laughs> at the time which was um yeah anyway <laughs> so I'm not going to get anybody with, into any trouble even with now. That, with that kind of in mind, was that yeah. concept again, the eyes over the ball, the shorter length putter then, was that more to kind of get over it, more compact, less well, movement? The, short, the shorter length putter came about because we were increasing the weight of the putter. So to, to increase, when Carson Solheim started the, the sort of moving weight to the heel and toe, the, the, um, the Anza putter, uh, evolved and subsequently from there the 285 gram head weight which was standard in a five iron and standard in a putter and the five iron was 37 inches long and again you know it comes back to we've mentioned it before but if you're just picking up here you you need to know that 37 inch five iron with 285 gram head weight and 32 degrees of loft is the same as an eight iron in some of the manufacturers today so clubs are not going further, conspiracy, right? controversy, clubs are not going further, just change the number. What modern technologies and materials and, and being able to, you know, sort of blend materials together so that bits of them don't fly out because, you know, we had to work out how to put, you know, certain materials together with other materials. You, you know, it's very difficult. You can't weld two different types of material together, so you have to work out how you're going to adhere them together. Um, you know, so basically, 
the the club we're able to now maneuver the weight around so that we can then get the ball to fly the way we want it to fly so we can change the flight on the shot when we um you know go back to the putter then at 37 inches long the reason for it being 37 inches because actually we didn't know any different we didn't know any better five iron was a d2 swing weight with a 285 head a 37 inch um, shaft and a you know whatever weight the grip was probably about 75 80 grams or whatever it would have been you know leather wrapped grip um that would have been on there now all of those things stack up to this d2 swing weight which seems to be the balance point or the balance weight of putters or clubs at the time and it it's in it's a bit of an enigma it doesn't really mean anything it's just a standard of measuring or a, a figuration of measuring of letters and numbers that allowed us to get on a scale you know to say right okay these clubs are matched and balanced and it primarily came about because we had um you know when we only had a few sets of, you know a few clubs in the set you know back in the day bobby jones had about six or seven clubs in his bag but he always complained that his mid iron or his six iron was not the club that he really liked and they found that it was half a swing weight out but until they got something to measure on scale, all the others were literally bob on, absolutely. And, and all they would do was literally give it a bit of this, hit a couple of shots with it, and then go and play with it because, oh, yeah, I like that. And if it didn't fly the distance they wanted it to go, did they get it in a jig and sort of, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, but that's generally how sector clubs were, were built. I remember a conversation with a um a family member of john letters when uh fred daly was being introduced to his set of golf clubs uh in the 1940s and you know he had a literally a factory full of clubs and he went along and pulled the three iron out and then four iron out and then he would you know grab a few more and then until they actually got the balance of the club in hand you know yeah, I like that, I like that. And before he even hit them, they had to get sort of these clubs, the look of the shape of the head because the forgings would be slightly different where they were finished. And, you know, things that had to fit the eye had to fit the feel and then fit the flight. And, you know, so club fitting was very different, you know, back then, but there was still a fitting process that the best players in the world would have the opportunity to, um, you know, just sort of get their hands on the clubs and pick, mix and match and pick and, you know a set that suited them and then they used it f forever you know because it didn't matter that the grooves had worn out you know in fact it was a, a trophy piece if you've got that rust spot and that those sort of blended grooves as you know you properly worn out your set of clubs because you don't want to go through you didn't want to go through the process of fitting the clubs again i don't know if you remember that well, I've I've just I've just sold a set of irons that I've had for years, and they have thank goodness they have got a decent rust spot on them, and and the guy was like, no, keep them on. I don't want you to clean them because I want my pals to think I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean that was obviously back in the day where we used forged, you know, sort of nickel and chrome plating, you know, sort of equipment before, you know, we do what we do with them today, which you know it, it hasn't changed an awful lot because um, pros still tinker don't they I see, I see a lot of players in their bags they've got little bits of lead tape here there mm -hmm. and either on the putter itself on the wedge on the driver what, what are your thoughts about that is it, is it something that they would be physically in the tour truck some players quite hands-on oh crikey yeah yeah no, it, it, probably the majority are not but there are a few guys out there that get in there and get their new clubs and then they're getting straight on the grinding wheel, you know, sort of Thomas Bjorn at Brumford on their wedges will get it straight in on the grinder and, you know, sort of it's like, right, you know, it's almost like, right, okay, which Monday are we going to choose to introduce the clubs to these guys? Because there's a, you know, that right, <laughs> and the way they go grinding away. and But they know what they're looking for. Uh, to some degree, the grind is done accordingly because some of their old clubs will probably have been taken away by Bob Vokey or um, Roger Cleveland, who's doing the, the, the basis of the design you know, from these clubs because they will have their specific grinds ready for them. You know, Mickelson would be much the same. I'm not sure Mickelson's a hands-on grinder, but you know, he knows what he's looking for. And you know, so these, these players are very much getting their hands dirty around the clubs themselves. Now, 
a lot of the guys aren't going to do that. But, you know, if they feel the club's a little bit light, it'll go on the machine, it's measured. It's like, no, no, it's not that. You know, let's have a little bit of lead tape, just put a bit of lead tape on there and, you know, oh, that's better. Now, for whatever reason they feel it's light and the scale says it isn't, you know, they're just not feeling that head weight. Now, it might be that the grip is one gram light or heavy. You know, it's making the swing weight feel a little bit out or, you know, whatever it might be because, you know, they've already been measured. You know, the, oftentimes to a point, in some cases, the glue's even measured as to how much goes yeah. on because that makes a difference. You know, we're talking about very small numbers, but they make a huge difference in feel. You know, layers of tape under the grip, thicknesses of tape, different tape suppliers. I know yeah. Tiger used to say that with Nike, that he, he knew how many layers of tape were under each club. And if there was somebody who made a mistake or put an extra one on, he, mm. he could tell from the feel. Oh, Faldo, Faldo was the worst. You know, he could tell by the microns of how much, um, how much chrome there was on, on clubs. I mean, it's just... Oh, it's it's a crazy thing, um, you know, in terms of the, uh, the the level of detail that some of the players have, and there are others that you could just give them anything and they'll go out and play with it. You know, I mean, it's um, and again, you know, the tour trucks don't always get it right either. You know, the equipment that comes out sometimes is just. I mean, Patrick Reed had a, a good example a couple of years ago, and the clubs were just so far out of spec that it was almost like what happened there you know it was a rogue set and of course now he's not using the clubs that he was using them. um i think that was callaway um mm. got that wrong so it does happen um from, from that the kind of nomadic golf for the golf route just to kind of recreational go into their superstore and buy their clubs are they getting the stuff that the pros are getting or is it just completely different on tour it's different it's different um the shafts for a start are not, um, there's a stock shaft that turns up on the, you know, on, on, on the shelves. Mm. And there's, um, that's why when you see, you can go and get an X100 shaft, is a good example, S400, X100 dynamic gold. Um, and then there's the tour issue and you pay extra for the tour issue. Uh, and it may end up being 150 pounds extra or 20 pound a club extra for that uh, for that shaft now you know tour issues like is it worth that you know word on the there were two words on the label uh yeah because the shaft's been balanced pured mm. spined whatever it is it, it's been completely you know sort of set balanced typically um frequency matched everything about the clubs that are going the shafts that are in those clubs you know, are completely and utterly balanced. So is it worth the extra? It'll mean the difference between the five iron not working if it's if it's not balanced. And, you know, I've had clubs like that in the past. I don't know if you have, but, you know, you play with a set of clubs, they all look fantastic. And then, you know, and the six iron's horrible. You know, it could be any club, but, you know, the six iron's just horrible. It's like, you know, you've got this hook going on and you're looking at it, you've got all the specs in there, you've checked the lie. You know, like, why is that happening? You know, what what is it about this club? And you put it on there, and there's just something about whether it's the shaft or you know the the weight of it or whatever it is, just something not quite right, and it shows up in the air. It doesn't show up on the ground. It doesn't show up on the scales. It doesn't show up in the measuring. Just something about the way the whole club just does not work and it could be uh, just a couple of grams of difference at mm. all the or position of the shaft going into the head or you know crazy reasonings but you know and that happens when the typically when the clubs come out of a uh, out, out of the trucks they are um they are very well put together they are very well balanced Every incremental part of its grips will all be at sourced weight. So, you know, the, and the, you know, the details in there, I remember having some wedges made by Srixon for me uh, when I first went out on tour, you know, my account was set up. It was all put into the computer. The shafts were weighed, the heads were weighed, the grips were weighed, you know, the, any additional add-ons were done. The, the loft and the bounce was done and the lie was done. It, you know, this was on three wedges that, 
you know, I figured was probably going to take me about an hour, you know, was three and a half, four hours. Mm. Watching them be made, I left with the clubs in my hand, um, you know, but three and a half hours, maybe, you know, it was a bit of a chat, but we're waiting for the glue to set, to settle, which settles very quickly. But, you know, and then the, to do the little tweaks and adjustments and, you know, choose that head, you know, which heads do you like? And big drawer of heads come out. Oh, Aladdin's cave of, you know, kid in the candy shop for me. But, you know, just being able to choose what clubs that, you know, I was able to go ahead and use and what loft specs I was going to have. And, you know, we didn't, you know, hit them into the launch monitors or anything like that at the time. It was literally, you know, all done up for me. And, you know, it was a privileged opportunity that was for, mm. um, you know, to see that, level of detail and that's one of the things that i offer for you know my clients when they come in for their putter you know the, the heads and shaft already built but then the little tweak the adjustment on the head the laugh the lie you know that those little adjustments that we make in terms of length and you know what grip type are you going with and, uh, you know where are we going with balance so we've got a grip type we've got to, then we've got to match the weight and the length of the, of the grip etc um so makes it a special experience special yeah. experience yeah, yeah. So, it's, I, mean, you know, I, I got it as a you know as a as a teaching pro you know sort of that experience that was extended to me and you know i've i've seen my clubs made um you know and and thoroughly enjoyed that experience so you know it's a big for me that's a big deal you know i, I see see my clubs turn up and you know invariably i'm the one putting the grips onto the clubs but you know just to have the whole lot there you go how's that feel it's like oh wow that's amazing um and just throw in a drawer you know a couple of hours beforehand um and that's what i think what's amazing about the series that you offer of the studio you've got the the workbench you've got everything all in one and hopefully people can see that when we come out of lockdown of being a come mm. see yourself get measured see the improvement and then walk away with either a brand new putter or an adjusted putter that's now going to suit the stroke that you've built. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it's a, I think it's an, it's something that we don't see enough. Um, you know, big box stores, pro shops, you know, the art of building golf equipment is not there. Um, you know, in, in the majority of cases and um, look, you know, there's a lot of younger pros out there than me now. And, um, you know, how many of them would have all the workshop facilities that would then, mm -hmm. you know, sort of go in there. If I picked up the phone and said to one of the pros locally, you know, could you help me out with, you know, adjusting um, my clubs if, you know, Melbourne wasn't around or whatever it might be. It would be like, well, um, I don't have any adjusting equipment. I don't even have a workshop what <laughs> how do you put grips on oh well and however they go to put the grips on i've seen how they do it i'm not going to share that with the audience that's not for me to do it's not it's called a door jam <laughs> something like that yeah um you, you know it's like not even done with a workbench let alone you know done with lasers or you know anything along those lines so uh just for the record i don't use a laser but um my eyes but are you've got but you've got a, a european tour tour truck standard set up in your studio <laughs> yes i have <laughs> so you know it, yes very much so and um you know it allows me to be able to secure the club you know i couldn't put some of the grips on that we no. put in on today you've seen you know the, the effort work, it takes to put on some Hard of the grips work. and i'm glad i'm not doing a whole set with those type of grips um you know these, how, how would you go on with those jumbo max that bryson's got andy they'd be a nightmare well, I'm not, I, I don't know what their under uh, listing is. So basically, you know, the, the grips are, if they're multi-compound grips, i.e. they're not just the material itself, but an overlay to the material so that there'll be an under listing. And if that under listing is made of any kind of foam or porousy type material, that's not, that's absorbing the um, fluid, it, which is normally used then to, to free up the glue that's on the, um, that's on the tape. Um, you would be inclined to probably use an air compressor, yeah. um, which would then expand the grip sufficiently you can get it over. That's probably the only way. You probably need some fluid as well, but um, yeah, you. I think you would be into air compressing um, the grips on, which then, you know, takes you to a completely different sort of experience again. Um, 
you know, air compressor works on the basis that it just expands the grip and allows it to go over the top and you get it into place while the air is still in there and then just release the air and locks into place and it's stuck. Um, you know, taking them off again then becomes a bit more of a challenge. Um, but it's, you know, it, it does work. It only really doesn't work on very thin grips because you, know, you blow, end up blowing the grip off. <laughs> which I've done <laughs> so I remember the first time I saw an air compressor was a company called ProSimmon um, they had an air compressor and I had the opportunity to go and blow a grip up um, <laughs> it's a loud bang there's a few places that I've done it since and it's just like it doesn't get it does get easier because it's the way that they're put together now but um, yeah there was a bit of fun it was, it was just one of those sort of experiences I don't mind it's a little bit like the tour truck challenge uh, of putting the grips on um, I think it was in the Callaway truck a number of years ago and it, for those of you that have never seen it Gareth have a look for it put the link on here it's a lot of fun but um, let's just say that double-sided tape and rubber gloves don't work well um, and it's a, it is a scary thought that the best players in the world can't put grips on, but actually you can't put grips on with big rubber gloves. It's as simple as that. So, you know, nor, nor do the guys do it um, on the trucks themselves. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's got to go on with your hands. And unfortunately, you know, your skin is susceptible to the fluids, which is why, you know, under health and safety now, they've improved the fluids so much more. Yeah. You can do it with these big fat grips. I remember I did it with a set of Yonex grips. Yonex were notoriously quite yeah, fat they had at the, the end. Big, yeah, yeah, see, and there's a special adapter for those. Yeah, That's like it. a little witch's, witch's hat that I, I used, but that was that was hard work to kind of put them on. Yeah, we've there is an art to, to those. We've talked a lot about this morning about the kind of misconceptions in the industry, and mm -hmm. if only, Andy, we had around about a 38-minute series that people could watch and consume to, to kind of banish some myths. I don't know if you know of anybody who's produced anything like that. Well... Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah. So what we've uh, so the tea the tease for everyone is that um, what Gareth's talking about is the putting myths. Um, Andy Gorman Golf has the putting myths uh, launching this week, and it's launching free. Um, it, all we need from you is to is to log on to the website uh, andygormangolf.com. On the front page in the top right hand corner, there's a subscribe to our newsletter. If you subscribe to that, then we will send you a copy um, of the putting myths. The putting myths is where we start with basically smashing everything that I've, has ever been taught about putting. So the things that Gareth alluded to a little earlier about where did we get the eyes over the ball concept and everything else. Well, back in the day, you couldn't do it because the putter was too long. And then, you know, uh, ultimately putters are now much shorter. The problem is they're too short and getting your eyes over the ball is a myth. So that's where it starts. That's where it ultimately finishes. Your putting stroke will be destroyed by the fact that, you know, you try to get your eyes over the ball. You might think, oh, you know, I'm a decent putter, but actually you, you may be a decent putter, but why not be a great putter? Yeah. Everybody can, be, can learn to be a great putter. If you want to live with the status quo of being decent or okay, you know, Two putts per green means you've missed one. If you had to hit two tee shots or two approach shots from the same place, right? Okay, I know it doesn't quite work like that on the greens, but because you missed one every single time, if I said to you every time you're going to stand over a 30-foot putt, you're going to get down in two, you might think, oh, I'll take that, but I hold a fair share and I hold more than I do miss, so I'm not taking those odds. You know, two from here? No, because I'm probably going to average enough, more than comfortably enough for me to take the risk factor on. Of mm -hmm. I prefer to try and hold the first one because I'm actually trying to hold it. And that's not because I'm a good putter, you know, or a great putter, because I wasn't a good or a great putter. The fact that I've always been, because I wasn't that way. You know, remember that 20 odd years ago, I was struggling not knowing which side of the hole I was going to miss the ball on. So, um, you know, so, so the key, you know, when you stand over a putt and you don't know where you're going to miss it, your head will be scrambled. When you stand over 30 foot putts and, you know, I haven't missed a putt on the golf course, you know, inside six feet for over five years, 
and you know that's not because i play on perfect greens not because you know i'm just i don't bother picking you know i pick the ball up you know i'm very diligent with those putts but it's because i can start the ball on the line i intend and roll it at the speed that's necessary so you know those factors those characteristics can be learned by anybody you don't have to be an exceptional talent i'm not saying that a little bit of talent doesn't go amiss but you don't have to be exceptional talent. If you're a 28 handicap golfer struggling with your putting, you can learn to become a great putter. Now, it might take you a little bit of time. I didn't get it in five minutes. But I had to overcome all the issues that I was dealing with as well. You may not be going through those issues. The putting myths is where it starts. It's the teaser to everything you've ever heard about putting and why you shouldn't do it, mm. ultimately. And there's just under a dozen of these myths out there. It was everything I was ever taught to do in order to teach you, the golfer, how to hold putts. And yet it contributed to me within a couple of years getting the putting yips. So every golf professional in the UK or around the world has been subjected to these myths as a principle to teach everybody who asks the question, because most people won't, but everybody who asks the question, these are the principles of how we learn to putt. And these are the things you need to do. Golf professionals have been taught this shit, right, in order to pass it on to everybody else in order to become shit. Or, as a consequence, become shit. I right? have. I have. I, so, I remember yeah. doing the ball trick. I remember doing the ball, dropping the ball from the yep. eyes. So the ball, yeah, brilliant eyes of the ball. So you want them straight back, straight through, Andy. That's what I want to see. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that really wound me up as a kid, I remember seeing this, I mean, it's been around a long time, but I remember dropping a ball from, my, from the bridge of my nose or from my left eye. So I was dropping it from the bridge of my nose and I'd hit the ball that was down below me because I'd got it right. That ball would shoot 30 feet. <laughs> the other one would go in the opposite direction. And now I've got to take my eyes up from where I was, find the two golf balls that had disappeared into the rose beds and the rockeries around the putting green, I go like flipping heck. Now I've got to change the what? Well, who on earth thought that was a good idea? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, just that in its own that wound me up something right. Like in fact, I only did it a handful of times before just getting completely sort of pissed off with chasing the golf balls around the putting green. Says, no, I'm not doing that. And I went to lining the ball down, you know, sort of making sure my putter dropped down, you know, on top of it. Right, okay. But of course, then I was hitting the golf ball so poorly yeah, i couldn't start the ball on the line i couldn't hit it at the right speed all the things that i was trying to do and actually all the things i was good at before i turned pro which was distance control from long range i didn't hit the golf ball very close right as a kid growing up i didn't hit the golf ball on many greens so i chipped it up really close that's the only time i had short putts and the short putts from the long range putts because it didn't matter if i was 30 yards off the green or 30 feet on the green I could get it inside the club length, and I don't remember missing putts inside the club in putter length. But my putter was longer, and I stood to the golf ball in a certain way that I didn't ever try to get my eyes over the ball. Mm. I couldn't because I wasn't tall enough. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, I'm five eight and a half, five nine. You know, is the the tallest I ever got. So, you know, that for me, that was, you know, anything. As soon as I got a putter of thirty three inches, well, I could get over it now. But the problem then is I ended up with a bad back or, you know, an aching back. So I didn't like doing that. Of course, actually, you know, my eyes and observations were when I watched Seve practicing. It's like, oh, he's bent over it and he's got a bad back, so it must be all right. You know, but I mean, did that contribute towards his bad back? Mm. Partly, along with his, you know, sort of other issues. Um, it, you know, he, he had a golf swing that had a very curved spine at the end of it what put pressure on his lower back, but also then he's putting setting up over the ball and he's rounding his lower back. So the lumbar spine, which, you know, is supposed to have a lumbar curve to it, which is inward, you know, he's trying to sort of straighten out, which he can, but it's not designed to be there all day or practicing for two, three, four hours. So, it, you know, it's just not the right band because it, it limits movement from there as well. So again, if you want information, on how to improve your putting the starting process it's free it's this week's giveaway right for free 
and it's got a lifetime of value. So I don't even know what, what sort of price I've put on it, but you know, from a point of view of all the information in there is what I've learned to be the myths of putting everything you've ever been taught. Some of the reasons why those principles have been taught and why they don't work are in there as well. Um, you know, all you need to do is go to the website, andygormangolf.com, click on the top right hand button, which says subscribe to our newsletter and I'll send you those for free. So I'm looking forward to folk getting those. That's really cool. Across the pond this week, it's Thanksgiving for our friends in, in the States. Um, just to kind of wrap Turkeys up. Turkeys are panicking. Turkeys are running away as we speak. Um, just to kind of a bit of a nice finish. What are you thankful for, Andy, in your golf game? What are you thankful that you've got or you've had or you, you're doing at the moment? Oh, my word. What a great question. Oh, you said you got something up your sleeve for me. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'm extremely thankful for the opportunity to be actually, to be able to share what I have, mm. you know, knowledge I've gained. That's I am extremely thankful for that. I'm, you know, I'd be more thankful if I was able to share share it in the studio and allow people to come and see me. Not thankful for coronavirus and you know and all the stuff that's going on with that. Great show today, Andy. Really enjoyed it. Again, the myths and, and encourage anybody to go out there and go to the website, click on the link, register your email to the newsletter and we'll get those myths to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to the responses from those because there will be a few in there that will go like, oh, right. How can I put without that? So, and you'll know where I am, um, you know, when you've contacted me on this platform and through the website remember andygormangolf.com click on the link that says newsletter and we'll get those across to you you know where to follow us on the other um, channels as well on all the social channels it's andy gorman golf and we really do thank you for your time and the opportunity to spend time with you wherever we happen to see you or hear you hear us um, you know, they 